Well, good morning and welcome to Vintage. It's great to have you. Happy Thanksgiving. Um, are you allowed to say Happy Thanksgiving even two days later? Is that okay? Am I in the window? The kids are with a no, straight up no. Well, okay, happy, happy wherever you feel you are right now in your journey toward Christmas. Uh, we're really grateful to have you and uh, we are in a special moment um, in the church's calendar because today we do transition out of the fall. We transition out of Thanksgiving, even past the Black Friday sales and into Advent. And uh, that's very exciting. I'm excited. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Julie Small. Thank you. Uh, and so we have got some things up the front, and I'm going to need some help. So I'm going to need our kids and our youth to come up, if that's all right, because we're going to do some special Christmas Adventy things. And you will notice here, well done, guys. Here we have our Advent candles. Anyone seen Advent candles before? Advent wreath? Literally maybe one in a bit. Okay, so every week we are going to light a different one of these candles because they represent different parts of the Advent story. And today's candle, the first one that we're going to light is this one. And this one represents hope. Um, and I've asked Eva if she's going to light this for us. And then after she's lit it, we're going to pray a special prayer that's going to come up on the screen. So do you reckon you, do, you have to... Let's do that. I might to help you. There. Got it? Got it. Maybe a bit longer. There, you did it. Fantastic. Okay. And every week we're going to pray this prayer that's on the screen, which is kind of like a special Advent prayer that we're going to use every week. So should we, should we say this together, guys? If you can see a screen behind you, you can also do it. Okay, we're going to say it together. Lord Jesus, light of light. You have come amongst us. Help us who live by your light to shine as lights in your world. Glory to God in the highest. Amen. Fantastic. So I think our high schoolers are serving this morning. Our middle schoolers are going off to their group. And then our nursery is through there. And our elementary are going here with you. Okay. Here. Not here. There. With you. Okay. Shall we, uh, should we give them a bit of a high five as they go? If you're on the central aisle, could you reach out a hand towards a minute? Okay, on your mark, get set, go. It feels good when we're together. It feels good when we belong. It feels right when we're united. No divides, living as one. Fantastic. That's really good. Well, um, welcome again, particularly if you are new this morning. Uh, my name is Ben. I have the wonderful privilege of being pastor here at Vintage Pasadena. And uh, we're really grateful to have you, particularly if you're new today. We are in this new season of Advent, and there is loads coming up in the life of the church. But just a couple of quick things, if, if this is one of your first times here. Um, we have a little phrase around here, which is stick six, um, as per the joke on the screen. And we would love to invite you, if you're looking for a church, to stick around for at least six weeks. Uh, it takes a while to get to know people. It takes a while to figure out what a church is all about. But we hope if you stick around for six weeks, you will get a chance to get to know us and join in and find a place to serve and love and receive and that you'll love the people that you're around and want to stay around for a lot longer. So please do stick six. Um, another thing that you can do uh, through uh, Advent uh, and all the work is, is to join in with a community group. Um, I don't know if anyone saw our Instagram feed this week. We had pictures of, of some of the different Friendsgivings that the community groups were having. It was a bit like a competition 
for who had the biggest party and the best food. It felt like one anyway. Uh, my community group, we didn't get on the Instagram feed because we only did ours yesterday, but there were some really good uh, pictures uh, coming up. And these are the different community group leaders. Uh, different community groups meet in different places at different times, different formats, but we all basically do the same thing. We have, we have a meal together, we pray together, we study the Bible together, we hang out together. And if you're not in a community group yet, um, this is a great time of year to join one because the food will be great at this time of year particularly. So these are the leaders. Um, you can go and find one directly. A lot of them are in the room right now. Uh, if you would like any help or an advice, you can find me after the service or Carla, who's at the back, and we will happily tell you a good community group um, to join in. That would be absolutely brilliant. Um, if you are online this morning, you can hire, you can film, uh, fill in the Connect card that is on the website, and we will uh, add you to the mailing list. If you are here this morning and you haven't been given a Connect card yet, we would love you to fill one out because we will give you a little gift at the welcome table, and that way we can also just let you know what's going on um, in the life of the church. That would be um, absolutely uh, fantastic. Um, so the other thing that you will see uh, on your chair this morning, if you uh, haven't sat on it and missed it, uh, is at least one, if not maybe two, cards. Uh, so we uh, love this time of year for so many reasons, but not least because it gives us a chance to welcome new people into the life of the church. Um, and it feels to me like Christmas is one of those moments in the year when it's an easy invite or a comparatively easy invite to say, hey, what are you doing? Would you like to come along and sing carols and celebrate Christmas with us at my church? So on your seat, you should have a little postcard um, and it's an invite to our Christmas Eve services. Uh, on the 24th of December, right here, we are going to be doing a 4 p.m. service and we're going to do a 6 o'clock service. And between them, we're going to have some fun with things in the courtyard of an edible, fun, Christmassy variety. So you can come to both if you'd like. But here's a little quick snapshot. It's what it says on the back of your cards. The four o'clock is a family nativity. So particularly if you've got kids or nieces and nephews and neighbors or whatever, they can come if they want to dress up as their favorite nativity character, they can. And we're gonna tell the whole Christmas story right here and the kids can come and join in and be part of it. If you're a bit older and you'd like to come, you're very welcome as well. You don't have to bring a small child to come to that service, but four o'clock. Um, the six o'clock service is gonna be a little bit more traditional. We're going to light some candles, we're going to sing some carols, we're going to have some different readings, and I'll be giving a Christmas reflection. But we'd love you to come, and particularly, please do take one of those postcards, take five of them, take ten of them, um, and hand them out to your neighbors and things like that. And if you uh, happen to be near a favorite shop or a, a store or a um, coffee shop, there are some postcards as well. And if you happen to know the nice owner of a local establishment who would put one of these little cards up in their window, that would also really help us because it'll get the news out about Christmas. So really, really great. Final thing to do with that as well is that through Advent, we have got an, on our Instagram feed, every day we've asked different people in the church to do a little short reflection of one of the verses, one of the short passages from Christmas. So do check out the Instagram feed every single day. I think it starts on the 1st which is this coming Wednesday, maybe. Whatever day the first is, anyway. Great. Uh, lots of other things are coming up in the life of the church as well. Um, here's a little slide. I'm not going to tell you about them all. There's just too many things. But if you've got your phone, you might want to take a photo of all of these if you don't know what they are. They're all on the website. Women's nights, men's nights, Big cleanup session here at Hamilton. Uh, we're going to be doing some stuff with Door of Hope. We've got a V Families event, and then, of course, the Christmas Eve services. So 
nothing to be bored about this Advent. There is lots to be uh, involved in, and we'd love to invite you um, to join us. As well as, of course, which I said on the Door of Hope thing there, we are going to be taking up a collection this week and next Sunday for particular items to do with Door of Hope. So there's a big red box right at the back next to Ed. And uh, if you didn't bring anything this week, that's absolutely fine, but you can bring stuff next week, and all the information of what to bring is on the website. Um, for items for the Christmas uh, celebration for Door of Hope. Whew! Okay, we did it. Announcement's over. Uh, shall, we, uh, shall we just turn to each other for a moment? And uh, we're just going to say good morning if you happen to be near somebody you don't know very well yet. Um, a good opportunity to just share the peace of the Lord with them for one minute, and then we'll come to God's word. Let's do that. <laughs> Super fantastic to be able to share Advent together as a church. I don't know about you, but I was um, thinking back to last Advent, and we were just going into another major lockdown, and it was cold, and people couldn't travel, and it was really confusing and difficult. Um, But it's really joyful to be able to be together this Advent, and I know a lot of our guys are on the road this week seeing people. Um, And I I don't know about you, but I I really love Advent. Depending on your church tradition, some people love Advent, some people have no idea what we're talking about when we say Advent. Um, But historically, Advent is the 40 days of run-up towards Christmas. Um, It comes from the uh, Latin word adventus, which means coming, or which is translated actually from the Greek word, which is parousia. And it's a prayer of the church. It's a waiting period of the church. It's a preparation period of the church where we pray, come, Lord Jesus, come to us again at Christmas. It's a time when we we prepare our hearts and we recognize the coming of Jesus in the first Christmas, but it's also where we look forward and we look forward to the coming of Jesus one day when he will return and he will finish the work that he has started uh, on the earth. Now, over the last 2,000 years, the predominant theme throughout the 40 days of leading up to Christmas has been prayer and fasting. Now, nowadays in our modern Western societies, not so much prayer and fasting, if we're honest, is December, more of turkey and shopping and wrapping presents and that kind of thing. But the beautiful thing about Christmas is that it's not about Advent, it's not getting ready for Santa, 
uh, not getting ready for the big Christmas parties, but it's actually a time to center our lives in, a chance to focus in on what Christmas is really supposed to be about. And so over the next four weeks, under the heading of the gift of joy, which is the beautiful thing that's on your postcard, it's the work that Arlene's been doing to create lots of graphics and designs for us, we're going to take four weeks to look at some of the different characters in the Christmas story. We're going to lift the hood, if you want, to look at what their significance is. Why are they in the story? Who are they? What do they bring? And what do they tell us about Jesus, who is, of course... Surprise, surprise, the center of the Christmas story. Not Santa, but Jesus, which is the the goal. And today we're going to start our Advent journey off together by looking at at the backstory, by looking at where Jesus came from in a human sense. We're going to look at the, the ancestry, the genealogy of Jesus. Now, I I think our genealogies and our ancestry and where we come from actually tells a lot about who we are, right? I uh, come from a very, very English family. Um, If you ever met any of my relatives, you would say they are very English in every respect. They're quite posh. They're quite traditional. um, And I think I sort of probably because of that carry something of that English love for a bit of tradition, uh, rules, over-taxation, bad teeth, bad emotional intelligence, you know, whatever else, I don't know. Um, That's a joke, some of that. Some of it's not a joke. Uh, But I also grew up in Hong Kong, and I spent a long time growing up in Hong Kong, and if people say, where are you from, I often say, hey, I'm from Hong Kong, because to me, actually, that means something. It's important. I feel like there is something of Hong Kong in my, my blood. It's something of a love for the busy, bustle, noise, cosmopolitan, extremely tall buildings, great food from all over the world. You know, like I, I feel something of that. But I guess we all have something in our blood about where we're from. People say to me nowadays, you sound more American. And I assume what they mean by that is that I'm, you know, more generous and, you know, I'm sort of more outward and positive and, you know, those kind of things. I'm sure they don't mean anything else by that at all. I'm, I'm sure that's what it is. But we're all from different places. We all have different things in our stories. Uh, not that many of us in this room are probably actually from Pasadena originally. So I thought we could do a little Advent shout-out. So I'd love to know where you are from, where you consider yourself to be from originally, predominantly. Okay, anyone, anyone prepared to give me a shout-out? Hold on. Washington, D.C. Okay. What, is it, what does it mean to you to come from Washington, D.C.? What is someone from Washington, D.C.? What, what are the characteristics that they carry? Well, I think there's a sense of the nation's capital. Okay. That you're very important, is what you said. Okay. <laughs> highly important. Okay, right. I got it. Washington, D.C., highly important, if you were watching online. Sorry, Alex, did you say something? Gary, Indiana. Okay, what does it mean to come from Indiana? It's a steel city. My father was a mill worker, and they were both immigrants from Eastern Europe after World War II. Okay. Okay, so Indiana, working class, blue collar, tough. Okay, good. Yeah, anyone else? Come on. You're not brave enough now. You're like, I'm not going to say what it means. Who's from somewhere else? Come on. Let's have one more. Santa Cruz. Santa Cruz. Okay, dude, what does it mean to come from Santa Cruz? Love of nature. Love of nature. Okay, fantastic. I was talking to some guys from New York. Laura and I have just been finishing a course with a leadership course with some guys from New York. I discovered if from New York, there is something a little bit different again, isn't there? There's something of a gritty determination of, like, you know, say it as it is, don't mince your words, get on with it kind of thing. 
But I guess wherever we're from, like whether it's part of the US or somewhere else, it kind of forms the story. And it's not just where we're from, it's the people who have come before us. It's our families who have shaped us, have helped us to become the people that we are. Now, in the first century, your where you were from and from whom you were from was so important, like even more important than it is today. Your genealogy was actually like your CV. It was your resume. If you wanted to announce the import of someone arriving, someone of importance, what you would do is you would actually put their genealogy in front of them because it would define their backstory, where they came from and why they mattered to the world. And so it's actually not surprising that when we get into Matthew's gospel, when we start at the beginning of the Christmas story, we start with the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Why he came, who he is, what he's all about. And we're going to see this morning that Jesus' genealogy actually tells us three very specific things. It tells us that Jesus brings the very hope that we're looking for in the world. Jesus brings the significance we're looking for. And Jesus brings the acceptance that we're looking for. Now, the bad news is, is that Jesus' genealogy contains some very complicated names. The good news is, is we thought that it would be unfair for one person to have to read it on their own, so we thought we could start a new tradition and all read it together. Is that right? Now, here's a little preacher's trick, okay? If you come across a, a name that you don't recognize, just do what all preachers do. Say it very loudly, very confidently, and everyone believes that you knew what you were talking about. Are you ready? Okay, so it's going to come up on the screen. We're going to read together uh, Matthew chapter 1. Um, from verse 1, and we're going to do it quite quickly because there's quite a lot of it. Are you ready? Okay, you're going to have to help me here. All right, on your marks, get set, go. The genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the land of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Amminadab. Amminadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salom. Breathe. Salom, the father of Boaz. Boaz is the mother of Rahab. Boaz is the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed was the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asa. Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram. Jehoram, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah, the father of Jotham. Jotham, the father of Ahaz. Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. Manasseh, the father of Ammon, breathe. Ammon, the father of Josiah. Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel. Shealtiel was the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, the father of Abahud. Abahud, the father of Aliakim. Aliakim, the father of Azor. Azor, the father of Zadok. Zadok, the father of Achim. Achim, the father of Elhud. Elhud, the father of Eleazar. Eleazar, the father of Mathan. Mathan, the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. And Mary was the mother of Jesus, who was called the Messiah. Give yourselves a round of applause. <laughs> I feel like I should have practiced that about 10 more times before I dared to read that with you. In Jesus, we find the hope in the world that we are looking for. I don't know about you, but I, I feel we all at one time or other ask the question, is there any hope? Is there any hope for the future? 
this moment, this situation, this financial uncertainty, this relationship trauma, this physical diagnosis, the career challenges we face, maybe looking out at more COVID or whatever it is, we ask the question, is it going to be okay? Is there any hope for the future? And the story of Israel was very much the same. 2,000 years ago, the Israelites looked out on the world and they said, is there any hope? Is it going to be all right? You see, in their history, in their past, God had spoken huge things over the Israelites, said that they were going to be the hope of all the nations. They were going to be God's chosen people, that God would reign supremely with them. But after millennia, or at least hundreds and hundreds and thousands of years of rejection, of rebellion against God, things looked dark. God had not spoken for 500 years. The people were not free. They were living under false kings like Caesar, like a tyrannical rule. To any Jewish person, to anyone in that society, the future did not look bright. There was not obvious signs of hope. But actually, in the genealogy, we see that in Jesus, it is exactly where we find the hope we are looking for. Just look at verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then it finishes in verse 16. And Mary gave birth to Jesus, who is called the Messiah. This is a genealogy that is actually framed in hope. At the beginning, Jesus is described as the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, if you remember David and Abraham, they are like sort of like the, the George Washington and the Abraham Lincoln of the Jewish people. Abraham was the very father of Jewish life. He was the one who God said, I'm going to bless you so that you can be a blessing to the whole world. Through you, this seed, the whole world will be transformed. And of course, David, he was like the great military conqueror, the great king. David, who you know, starts as this little tiny shepherd boy, then gets a slingshot and kills Goliath, and then eventually goes on to be probably the greatest king that Israel ever gets to have. And as Israel, in their stories, in their traditions, as they look back, they looked back to Abraham. They looked back to David, and they said, would you do it again? Like, God, would you do that again? Would you bring us back to that place of intimacy? Would you bring us back to that place of freedom where we could worship you without tyrannical rule and problematic dictators and feeling like we're under oppression? Would you bring us back to that place of closeness like David had, the man after God's own heart? And the prophets told the story. They told the story that one day God would return to his people. One day he would save them. One day he would redeem them. One day he would dwell against amongst his people. And the word that the prophets used was an old word, a word for king. It was the word Messiah. And so when in verse 16, it said, as we all just read together, and Mary was the mother of Jesus who was called the Messiah. What Matthew is saying is just this, mic drop. He is here. Jesus has come to earth. God has not forgotten us. We are not left on our own. He is faithful to his promises. His plans will prevail on the earth. What the genealogy of Jesus actually is shouting at the first century readers, just like it shouts at us, is God is in charge. God does know what he's doing. God is sovereign. Even in the midst of the mess, even in the midst of the wars, even in the midst of the challenges, God is working out his good plans and his promises. God will be faithful. 
God will be faithful even when it's a mess, even when it doesn't feel neat and tidy, even in the waiting, even in the silence, God can be trusted to do good things. We actually see it in three different ways. We see it in opposition. In the genealogy, there is all sorts of stories of wars and brokenness. Israel were pretty much wiped out by this point in history. And I don't know if this morning some of us arrive at church and we're like, I'm, man, I'm pretty much wiped out if I'm honest. I'm pretty much done. I'm so broken. I'm so opposed. The genealogy of Jesus says, even then, God is faithful. God is faithful in mistakes. If you look, and we're going to look at in a few minutes at some of the characters in the genealogy, they were a mess. They were people who made all sorts of mistakes. I mean, David, just as one example, committed adultery, murdered somebody. You know, maybe you come to church this morning and you feel like, gosh, you know, my mistakes, my history just rules me out. It's too much. There's no way back. When actually, Jesus says, even in mistakes, I'm faithful. Even in rejection, God is faithful. Some of the people in the genealogy actually flat out turn their backs on God and walk away and do the opposite. Even in rejection, God is faithful. You know, even though Israel's history had been full of opposition and rebellion and rejection and betrayal and moral failure, actually God's goodness has the last word. And the wonderful news, I think, of that for us is that that's true for us too. As we come this morning with our messes and our brokenness and our wobbliness and all the other things that we feel and have done and have experienced, that God gets the last word because he's good that God is supreme, that God is kind, that we can have hope for the future because God came to rescue us in Jesus. Yeah, Portuguese proverb, which I love so much, it says this, God writes straight with crooked lines. I love that, isn't that great? God writes straight in your life. He writes straight in my life, even with the crooked lines. This morning, church, Jesus is the hope that we are looking for. Next thing is, uh, Jesus is also the significance that we're looking for. I wonder what uh, historians will write of our generation in hundreds of years to come. I feel they will probably want to say something about the endless search for meaning and significance that was true in our world today. Tony Schwartz wrote in his article in the New York Times called The Enduring Hunt for Personal Value. He said this, we each want desperately to matter, to feel a sense of worthiness. It's a bit like, you know, some of you will probably watch this film at Christmas, like Shrek, donkey in the Shrek, right? Constantly says, pick me, pick me, pick me, pick me. I feel like at some level we're all saying that. We want to matter. We want to make a difference. We want our lives to be significant and to be important. But the problem is, of course, is that if we go about that the wrong way, that search for significance can just kill us. It can hurt us. It can destroy us. And particularly, it can do those things if our hunt for significance is to compare ourselves to somebody else. Anyone ever struggle with that, comparing yourself to other people? I mean, we do. Our kids have to deal with this now, right? You know, from the age of like four years old, they get test scores, which are compared to other test scores of other children as to whether or not they're doing okay anymore. Then they get into like social media territory. And if we're honest, social media can be a little bit of a problem with comparing ourselves to other people, right? I mean, maybe it's just me who goes on social media and thinks, why is everybody else's life perfect? Like, why is nobody crying? 
Why does nobody shout? Like, why, why does everyone just have this picture-perfect Californian like bodies and lifestyles on social media? Maybe there's something wrong with me. And, and social media becomes this hunt for deep significance. And if you don't think that affects you, I wonder if you know how many likes you had on your last post. And I wonder if you're trying to build up the number of likes that you get on your social media post. Um, we do it in the workplace. Don't we? Uh, all the time. You know, I grew up at an international school in Hong Kong, and a lot of my friends went off to work in these big business centers and banks around the world. And some of them literally do drive Ferraris. And just occasionally, I'll think, goodness gracious, as I drive my Hyundai down the street, that could have been me. <laughs> like, if only I'd made different life choices, maybe I could be the guy with the Ferrari. We compare ourselves. Are they better than me? Am I better than them? Who's doing better? And then if you keep going long enough, you become a parent, and then we be you get that kind of keeping up with the Joneses thing. I don't know if that phrase still exists. But it's, yeah, it does still exist. Okay, yeah, it's like, you know, when your kid comes home and there, it's like, Dad, my, my friend, he's four years old, but he's just got an iPhone 14. It's like, how is that possible? <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, we want one, I want one, everyone else has got one, I need to have that. You know, we get this keeping up the Joneses thing, which, by the way, is a little pastoral advice for you. The right answer to those questions, if you ever find yourself trying to keep up the Joneses, is just simply this. You win. You win. Like, no, they, they win, we lose, it's totally fine. No problem. But it's so difficult, isn't it? If we're not careful in this endless pursuit for significance, we end up not successful and happy and peaceful. We end up driven and desperate and depressed. But in the genealogy of Jesus, we see that Jesus is the very significance that we have always been looking for. And we see it because ultimately what Jesus does in the history of success is he rips up how people define success in the world. You see, your ancestry was actually like your bragging rights. If you wanted to participate in the worshiping life of Israel, you had to prove to the people around you that your history was good enough. And so what you would do when you wrote your genealogy is you wouldn't put everybody in, because that would be a bit sketchy. What you would do is you would pick the very best people that you could find, and then that you would use them as your resume. I don't know if you were writing your genealogy who you would include. Um, I found out recently that I have a, an ancestor from like four or 500 years ago who was both um, one of the founding members of the, the Bank of England, and directors of the Bank of England, but at the same time, he was a registered pirate. It's like, this guy would definitely get in my genealogy. Uh, I don't know who you would include in yours, but you probably have some people who you wouldn't include in your genealogy. I definitely have. Laura and I went to Barbados in the summer, and we found out there's a whole strain of the chasers who are very famous, but for absolutely all the wrong reasons. They would not be in your genealogy. And so in the Old Testament, what you would do is you would pick the very best. You would select and you would deselect the people. Include that person, don't include that person. And so when Matthew gives the story of Jesus, everyone would have expected this is going to be a story of A-listers, the pure-blooded, Israelite, famous people. And it does start well. Abraham, David, and everyone would have gone, yeah, great, we're with you. But then before long, it just goes completely weird. Verse 3, Zerah was the mother, Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. And they'd have gone, what? Like, you're literally ruining your resume. I mean, not only have you chosen a woman, which is, of course, absolutely fine, but in that context, people would not have chosen women because they had no legal or religious or social significance. But actually, they've chosen not one, but four women in this context who are not pure-blooded Israelites. In fact, they are people who were non-Israelites or at least connected to non-Israelite families. And on top of that, they were women who had really sketchy histories. 
They were most all of them, uh, before at least Mary, they were all involved in potential sex scandals. Like to put these people in your genealogy would be literally committing like some sort of like career suicide. These would not be the people who would get you into public school. Right? They, private school, sorry, you call it private school here, not in England, public school. They wouldn't help you out. William Barclay said, if Matthew had ransacked the pages of the Old Testament for the most improbable characters, he could not have discovered more improbable ancestors for Jesus than these people. Matthew could have used Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, the matriarchs of the Jewish family, but yet he chooses these women who are broken, who are lost, who are caught up in all sorts of immorality. But here's what Matthew's telling us. Jesus brings a new type of significance into the world. He's tearing up the rule book of significance where culture says significance is about fitting in, being right, looking right, doing right, having the right kind of people in the right kind of place, seen, being seen with the right kind of qualifications. Jesus says, actually, that's not how this thing is going to work anymore. In fact, if you look at the life of Jesus, you see that Jesus generally does not go to hang out with the most wealthy, the most pure, the most noble. Who does Jesus go to hang out with? Jesus goes to the woman at the well. Jesus goes to the leper, the broken. Jesus goes to the woman caught in adultery. Jesus goes to the very people who the world would have rejected. Where the world says, you aren't good enough. You have messed up. You are too broken for me. Jesus says, your significance is not found in that. Your significance is not found in whether you're good enough. Your significance is found in me. You know, I think Christmas is this really interesting time, isn't it? Where we hear the stories of Santa. And the story of Santa is, is basically this. Be good enough. Anyone got an elf on the shelf? I don't know if that's going to be a thing this year. In, in previous years, it's basically this, this slightly strange elf that you get and you put in your house. And it spies on your children or you tell it that it spies on the children. And then you, you say that this, the elf is going to go back and tell Santa whether you have been on the good list or the naughty list. And of course, if that were true, then you know some of us would be in big trouble. But I feel like if that was true, who would Jesus pick? He wouldn't take just the good list. That's who Santa would take. Jesus would take everyone. And he would love taking the people who were on the naughty list. You know, Jesus, so often in his life, he took people who everyone else just said, this person is not good enough. They are too broken. Instead, he says, I love them. I love them. I made them. I love to be hanging out with them. These are my people. You know, don't you know how amazing it is that I made her, even though you have rejected her? Don't you see how much beauty is in him? even though the world thinks that he has no value. Psalm 139 in the New Living Translation, it says this, you made all the delicate inner parts of my body and you knit me together in my mother's womb. Thank you for making me so wonderfully complex. Your workmanship is marvelous, how well I know it. You watched me as I was being formed in utter seclusion as I was woven together in the dark of the womb. Maybe just for a minute, turn to the person next to you and say this, you are so wonderfully complex. Can you do that for a minute? Wonderfully complex. That person may not like you anymore, but I think it's a, it's a beautiful, beautiful complex. Rick Warren says, God deliberately shaped and formed you to serve him in a way that makes you and your ministry unique. He carefully mixed the DNA cocktail that created you. I, I love that. I love it. You know, in every, in, in every recipe, and some of you have probably been 
baking and cooking and getting meals ready this weekend, maybe for the first time, maybe for the last time, depending on how it went, I don't know. You know it's all about getting the blend of ingredients right, isn't it? You know, too much of one thing and you get in big trouble, too little of another thing, you can get into trouble. But what, what this says is that Jesus, when God created you, he balanced up things deliberately. And he meant it. Um, you know, we've discovered in, in, in our house that actually getting the balance of ingredients is quite important. Uh, our daughter, who's eight, has just started to getting into preparing des de desserts for our family, and we're very excited about that. She's been experimenting, it would be fair to say, uh, when she turned up with rice pudding with about three tablespoons of lemon juice in everyone's. It was, you know, it was a, it was a different experience that, that we might not repeat. But when God made you, he didn't make a mistake. He didn't put too much of one thing in your life. In fact, his original plans of you was he created you exactly as he wanted you. He gave you a shape, specific shape. The S is your spiritual gifts, the things that you have that I don't have. That's why you matter so much in this church, because you have things that I can't do. You have things that nobody else can do. He gave you an H, your heart, the passions, the things that, that you love, the things that make you come alive. He gave you abilities, things that you can do that nobody else in this room can do. He gave you a personality, P for personality, and he gave you experiences. You know, whether or not those things have become distorted and broken and warped in your life through all the things that you might have been for, God made no mistake when he made you. Paul puts it like this in Ephesians 2, for we are God's masterpieces. You can turn to the person next to you. You are a masterpiece. Fantastic. You are a masterpiece. Uh, we are God's masterpiece. He created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the things he planned for us long ago. When God made you, he didn't just make you for fun. He actually had a plan for your life, which was to include you in his redemptive kingdom purposes. And because of that, you are now free to be who God made you to be, even if you feel less, even if you feel like by the world standards you have no significance. The beauty is that in Jesus you do. You matter. You matter intensely and immensely. And then finally, in Jesus, we find the grace that we're looking for. I think there's always this deep desire to be known just as we are, and loved just as we are. I guess of this weekend, um, a lot of us have been traveling, maybe gone back home to see family, or we're coming to a time of year when at Christmas we'll get to go home and go to like where, the place where we feel most at home. And I feel like when people leave like places like LA, it's almost like you sort of get on the plane, or you get off the plane at the other end, and you, you take off the skinny jeans of LA. You know, you, you, you can let the hair go a little bit from the, and the makeup go a little bit of LA. That's what I do, obviously, uh, when I leave LA. You, know, you, you can relax. You sit down on, on the couch in the family home. You know, you put your feet up. You put on the, the Christmas movie, and you wake up three hours later with your face in the cheese puffs or something like that. You, you know, you just, you just get to be who you are. You don't have to pretend anymore. And I think deep down, we, we all long to be able to just be who we are, when so often instead we feel like we have to pretend to be somebody else. We have to perform. We have to be good enough. We have to be beautiful enough. We have to be nice enough or clever enough for somebody to love us. But actually what we find in the genealogy of Jesus Christ is that God's grace is 
enough. We are embraced for who we are. Jesus gives the grace, the acceptance, the kindness that we're all secretly, desperately longing for. And we see it because Jesus doesn't highlight the superstars. Jesus doesn't highlight the moral superheroes or the goody two-shoes. He highlights the people who really are about the most broken of all the people on earth. And it's not just Jesus, if you notice. I mean, God does an amazingly good job of picking people who are really broken to be in his family. Adam, the very first human, was a blame shifter. Cain murdered his brother. Noah, the last righteous man on earth at the time, was a drunk. Abraham, an adulterer, Isaac, took his wife, uh, tricked his wife into concealing their marriage. Jacob was a liar. Reuben slept with his father's father's concubine. Moses was an angry murderer. Miriam was a great songwriter, but had sibling jealousy and grieved the power. Saul was unstable and desperate. David was a murderer and adulterer. Solomon had a thousand wives. That might be a good thing or a bad thing, I don't know. Uh, The prophets, even as they spoke for God, struggled with impurity, depression, and faithful spouses and broken families. Who does God choose to bring into his stories? Everyone. And he seems to have an incredible affinity for those who feel like they are the most broken. God's story is a story of grace. Because God knew that you and I, we could never match up to his standards. We could never make it on our own. That's why Christmas matters so much. It's because God came to dwell with us. God, Emmanuel, to rescue us to save us, so that when God sees us through the cross of Jesus Christ, he actually doesn't see our brokenness anymore. He doesn't actually see the mess and the things that we have in our hearts that can feel so broken and dark. Actually, what God sees us, he sees us through the cross. He sees us as he always designed us to be, as pure and blameless and holy. You see, I think sometimes we think that God is this like finger-wagging, angry man in the sky who's looking down right now and going, you're messing it up. You're doing it wrong. Well, actually, if God only cared about people who got it right, the genealogy of Jesus would look nothing like the one that we've just read this morning. It would look like pure-blooded, blameless people who never got anything wrong. Instead, it doesn't look like that. We see a genealogy of forgiveness, of grace, of God's mercy overcoming all of the brokenness that we sometimes see. You know, maybe this morning you come to church and you're like, man, God, God could not love me. He couldn't deal with me. If he really knew what I was like, he would kick me straight out the door. Fred Savage says, all our young lives, we search for someone to love, someone to make us complete. We choose partners and change partners. We dance to a song of heartbreak and hope, all the while wondering if somewhere, somehow, there is someone perfect who might be searching for us. Of course, the answer is that there is. It's God. God loves you. He came to you that first Christmas in his grace. Grace is giving you what you don't deserve, a new beginning, a new chance, a second hope and a second life. You know, the story of Christmas doesn't actually finish with birth. It finishes at Easter when Jesus gave everything on the cross. He died for you to deal with your brokenness, to deal with your pain, to mean that your story doesn't have to end in defeat, that it can end in victory. And it's so beautiful 
It's such a beautiful season of the year. It's why I love Advent so much. But I want us to say one final thing in closing is that because God loves you so much, that God wants to involve you in his story, he actually loves you too much to leave you just in your brokenness too. The story of the genealogy is a story of redemption, of human lives that were broken being gathered up into God's eternal plans and purposes. And I really believe that for all of us, that is God's will for our lives, whether we would call ourselves Christians yet or not, that God wants to join you into his story. And that's why I just want to tell you about two quick things as I finish. The first one is about actually how we deal emotionally with some of the baggage and the brokenness of our past. A bunch of us have been doing this stuff with emotionally healthy spirituality. And uh, Laura and I just finished the leaders course, and some of our community groups have been doing it. And it's a beautiful course. You can do it online. You, some, you can read the books. And it's a way to look at our histories and look at our genealogies and realize that some of the baggage we have does need dealing with because it leaves us with things that can feel a bit broken. As they actually say on the course, Jesus can be in your heart, but grandpa is in your bones. And that's important. So I would really recommend that. The other thing I would really recommend is uh, inner healing prayer. And uh, John's here this morning. John and Tisler are here, wherever they are in the room. Somewhere. Here you are. Um, And they are a part of our inner healing team. And they just offer prayer ministry, uh, which deals particularly with with breaking uh, apart some of the broken strongholds and even the spiritual strongholds from our history and our past, which is really important. And so, again, if you've never done that, and you think that that would be a helpful thing, it's all confidential, it's all private and personal, then um, please come and see me and I can help you connect with John, with Tisler in order to do that. But God loves you. It's a very simple message this morning. God sent Jesus to sweep you up, to include you in his kingdom plans and stories. And I believe this morning that God would just want you to know this morning that he has hope for you, that he has significance for you, that he has plans and purposes for your lives. And I'm just going to pray now that the Holy Spirit would come and meet you and that you would know that to be true for your life.